Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for our Big Time Talker podcast. We are live and worldwide. Folks, subscribe on iHeartMedia, on Google, on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, tell a friend and have them subscribe, too. And thank you to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. Live speaking events will come back in 2022 if you're a platform speaker or if you're a meeting planner, find one another at our friends at speakermatch.com. Today, we're talking legendary music. And if you look into the annals of rock and roll music history, one of the earliest groups to really make their mark and whose music is still performed and heard today all over the world is the Drifters. The Drifters first hit big in the early 1950s. The original guys, of course, are, are long gone, but a second and now third generation of Drifters have picked up the mantle to carry this timeless music forward. And Jerome Jackson is one of those guys. He's been the lead singer for the Drifters now for decades, and he joins us from uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. Hey, Jerome, how are you? I'm doing fine, my friend. How about yourself? Doing great. I appreciate you being here. You uh, you grew up in the Tidewater area in Richmond, Virginia. When when you were small, did you have any inkling that that music would be something you would do in in your future? Not a thought of music. Even though my mother told me at the age of three or four, I was sitting down on a stoop in front of my house with my little cousins, and a song came on, and I started singing. And the note got high and I kept going up and my little cousins looked at my, looked at me and looked at my voice like, wow, is he really doing that? My mother told me that. So, no, I didn't have a clue about singing. I was really a sportsman. I love baseball. And baseball basketball. is your game. I loved it, man. I mean, this is my mother's doing here, I must say. Well, uh, we got to talk about baseball. Did, did you have game as a young guy? Did you play uh, ball in, in junior high and high school? I never got to play in uh, junior high or high school, but I played a lot of Sandlock. But the reason I didn't play in uh, high school was because by that time, I had gotten popular singing. So um, I went out for the team in my my junior year, and the coach said that um, he doesn't play – guys who just got on the team. You had to sit on the bench for a year. So I was already popular. So I said, no, I don't think I want to sit on the bench because I'm better than everybody on this team. So I just quit, which I shouldn't have, but I did. Ah, see, the arrogance of youth got you there. (laughs) Yeah, it did, man. Did you have a favorite team growing up? No, I, um, I did look at Sandy Koufax a couple of times. But basically, when I was young, all of my friends stayed out at the park every day. Every day we were at the park or doing something. We didn't stay in the house to look at TV. We were outside all the time. So but I think I was six years old when I first started pitching and I was throwing the ball to my cousin in, a, in the playground and the coach came by and saw that I was hitting the target. So he asked my cousin, which was older than I, could I play with the team? So he said, yeah, if you want to. So I went and I played. In the first game I played, I threw all strikes, but I threw them straight down the plate. And this was about six years old. And wow. everybody hit a home run. 
everybody that came to bat hit a home run. <laughs> but I think by the time that I was 11 and I moved to another place, 11 or 12 years old, I was truly untouchable. They couldn't hit me. And um, in my 40s, uh, the Drifters did a show for the old timers, Frank okay. Robinson, Boog Powell. So they called and asked did any of the Drifters want to play. Wow. Yes, I want to play. Sure. So um, I went and played, and I played right field. And I kind of controlled the game from right field. I pulled my hamstring, so I had to leave early. But at the end of the game, um, Frank Robinson pulled me to the side. He said, young man. I said, yes, sir. He said, you're in the wrong business. And I was in my 40s then. So I knew I, I had game. I had real game. But um, my mother kept getting the church people to come down to the ballpark to get me. And she said, if I didn't come, come and get her and she'll come get me for them. So that's how I started singing. Now, if you're just tuning into the podcast, you might think we're talking to a, a major league baseball player. No, <laughs> indeed, the lead singer of the Drifters, Jerome Jackson, who, who started as a baseballer, but, but mom had other plans. Yeah, she did. You talked about singing in church, and that is such a huge thing. Certainly was a couple of generations ago. Yes. Um, why is that? Why is that such an important part of the childhood experience, you think? Well, um, it, was, it was important for my spirit. Um, I can't say it was that important for um, the singing itself, but my spirit was refreshed and and I was able to um, show my spirit at a very young age. I never really had to try to sing. God gave me the talent that I really never tried. It was always there. And I think that's why I um, never really cherished it as much as I should have, because I really didn't want to do it in the beginning. But things kept happening. From the church, I went to high school. And my first day in high school, the music teacher, which I didn't know at that time, was walking down the hallway where I was and stopped me on the side and said, young man. I said, yes, sir. He said, are you in the choir? I said, no, sir. He said, well, tomorrow you will be. <laughs> you are now. Yeah. So he must have seen me singing church somewhere and, and saw me walking down the hallway and got me in the choir. So I started singing in the choir in church, I mean, in, in school. And um, the teacher wrote a song that one of the guys um, did on an assembly. Well, I heard him do it and I told the teacher, well, I can do that better than him. So we practiced it and the next assembly I did, the girls went absolutely crazy. I mean, I went from being a nobody to all of a sudden, Everybody, all the girls, everybody knew me. And that was half of the school the first time that came. So they did it again, and I sang it again. Well, the second time, the, the other half of the school came. But when I got ready to sing, the girls from the first assembly got up out of the classrooms and ran to the auditorium. So he had to stop it and put me on speaker and all of the classrooms and that's how they went back. So it's been a journey. Um, it, it's, it's truly been a journey and this is God's doing. It's not mine. I promise you it's not mine. I, I give my all, I love it. 
I enjoy entertaining the people. It's I, I, I enjoy making people feel good. So that's that, that must be my blessing, you know, because it, it just kept happening all the way through. I sang with a lot of people. You're a high school kid and you open your mouth to sing and every high school girl comes running. That's got to be some pretty heady stuff. That That's life-changing in itself when you're 16 it years old. It was. It was. Yeah, no doubt. And you from know, there. You talked about the, the, the church piece and singing in church. And, and there was a time when that was really frowned upon. You know, the famous stories about Sam Cooke, for example, yes. Luther Franklin. Yes. You know, yes. moving into secular music and the yes. devil's music and all that. Did yes. you ever have any of those kinds of experiences when when you started doing secular music and people gave you the side eye? No, I didn't because by the time I started doing the secular secular music, I was finishing high school. I got mad with the church or the the, the, the groups that I was in because um, the um, the leader of the group wanted to fire a friend of mine because he felt that somebody else could do it better. He was getting ready to do an album. So I didn't like that. So I, I told him he shouldn't do that. So when he didn't, I quit. And I told a friend of mine that I was in church with, they had a rock and roll group. If they ever had an opening, let me know. So he did. And I went and tried out. And I started singing with them. Uh, we were called Richmond Extension. We um, had a contract with Van McCoy. You know him? Oh, wow. The Hustle. Van McCoy, yes. The Hustle. Yes, he he loved me as a person. He loved me, my voice and everything. So we had a recording contract with Polygram Records. Um, my first record was Everything's Coming Up Love. Um, it didn't go too far because Van had a dispute with the recording company and they dropped us. Uh. But with that group, I traveled all over the United States, all over Canada and Mexico and everywhere. And I came to New Jersey. <laughs> and the group was about to break up, but it wasn't. Uh, there was a young lady in the audience that was the fiance of one of the members of the Joneses. I don't know if you heard the song Sugar Pie Guy. Sure. Yeah, yeah. She was at the show and um, she went back and told her boyfriend that there's a guy over in New Jersey you need to listen to. So he came over and he listened to me. And after the show, I didn't know, but he he came up and said, I'm so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, if your group ever break up, you got a gig. So the group broke up. I called it. I went and started singing with the Joneses. So and that was the beginning of, of you being a national entertainer. Then. Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. Yes. But it was still struggles. We, we, we did an a, a album with Columbia Records which didn't go anywhere because it was changing over. And, and it was just a whole lot of different things going on. But the main thing was the group was, wasn't as dedicated. I mean, they were, but it was brothers and, and, and sometimes they didn't get along. So that was kind of rough. Our manager was Van, I mean, was um, Vaughn Harper. You ever heard of him from BLS with, um, um, I can't think of the other um, renowned uh, DJ there, but he was there with him. Anyway, he was our manager. From WBLS, <laughs> famous radio station in New York. Yeah, yeah. The main ingredient was looking for a singer. He saw that I was very dedicated, so he knew them. So he called up 
Tony or Cuba, whichever one it was. And he said, he got just the person for you guys to sing. Tony Sylvester called me on the telephone. I loved the main ingredient when I was little, so I knew all of their songs. He, he um, auditioned me on the telephone and gave me the job right then. What year was that? What year did you get the job as a I singer for the main ingredient? 85, 86. I took Luther's place, the, the tenor. I took his place. Luther Simmons. Yes. So, so I was with them until 91. And then they broke up. And this is the last story. They broke up. The Drifters um, uh, representative from the Drifters band was in a show in Manhattan and saw a group, a band that I had sang with maybe a year or so ago, or I had been with them. At the end of the show, the Drifter representative walked up to the stage and asked them that anybody from that group want to sing or trial for the Drifters. They said, no, but I think we got just the person for you. They gave them my number. I went to an audition and I've been there ever since. So Jerome Jackson is our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast, the lead singer of the Drifters since the early 90s, even that yeah. music alive. Yes. Um, you, you mentioned listening to the main ingredient when you were a high school kid, Jerome. Who, who else was influential? And do you remember what was on the radio in Richmond when you were in high school, who you listened to? Yes. Well, I was uh, the manager at a, a variety store and I, they had me in the entertainment department. So all of the new songs that came in, they came through me first. The OJs, the originals, uh, the intruders, um, um, uh, just everybody doing that era was coming through there, so I kind of knew it. But the main ingredient was my favorite group. Wow. And, and it, it was just amazing that I had a chance to sing with them. Grab that brass ring. And of course, the whole world knows everybody uh, plays the fool. And, and you actually got to go on stage and sing that. W when you get a job like that from a group that you really lo loved, you idolized, yeah. Yeah. and you walk out on stage with them the first time, is there a moment, you know, uh, for those of us that don't do what you do for a living, where yeah. you, you know, it, it dawns on you, oh my God, this is really happening. And I'm living my dream. My dreams have exceeded reality, you know? Well, I never really looked at it like that. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, the first show that I did with them was in Canada. Okay. And I was used to dancing all over the stage and doing all kinds of stuff with all the other groups that I performed with. Well, the main ingredient was just a stand-up group. They swayed from side to side. And I was up there cutting up. So at the end of the show, they was like, oh, Jerome, you can't do that. That's not the main ingredient. You know, so, and plus, Tony and Cuba had a toxic relationship. Mm. Cuba was more like ghetto and Tony was more like royalty. So they always bumped heads, you know? So it was, it was, it was kind of rough. And I was a little guy in the middle from church trying to get them right. That's what that was all the time. So it, it was, it was quite an experience. I love singing with them, but the overall thing was, it, it was, I loved it, but it was problems because of the way that they dealt with each other. Tough personalities, and you were the yeah, man in the middle. Yeah, I tried to, I tried to help them a, a few times. They, 
saying, you young guy, you, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. So, but they, you know, they respected me. So that's all I could ask for. When, uh, when you were in Richmond and, and you were first getting started, was there a vibrant music scene there? Was there a lot happening? Because, you know, you don't think of Richmond as uh, Virginia as necessarily being a music capital of the world. You think of Los Angeles, New York City, or, or country music, Nashville. Was there yeah. a lot happening in Richmond? Nightclubs was everywhere during the 60s and 70s. Well, 50s too, but I was a little kid. Right. I was born in 51, so... Um, in the 60s and 70s, there was, there was nightclubs everywhere. And a lot of them I did back in the time with the group that I started out with. And uh, we did a lot of them there. And, um, but that was, the, that was the era. It was nightclubs everywhere, all over the United States, everywhere. It was, it was the Chitlin Circuit. Yeah. That was the first one. So, but they were, they were everywhere. We went, I went all over with them. So you uh, you came of age in a, a pretty tough time in this country. I mean, Vietnam was happening, yeah. assassination of Dr. King. That would have all been right when you were in high school, right? Yes. Uh, I didn't know too much about the movement, really. Um, we were, I, I must have been sheltered. It was like a, just family where I was. And all, like I said, all we did was go to school and play sports all the time. We stayed outside. So. I really didn't get the effect of it really almost until he died. Wow. And then I then I kind of knew a, a little bit more about it. You know, we were we were kind of sheltered from that. You know. Did you uh did you get drafted? Did you have to serve in Vietnam? No, my number came up about 200 and something. I'm I was glad because my soul I don't know how I could kill somebody. I don't right. feel that in my spirit. So, I was glad that that came up like that. You must have had friends that had to go over there, right? A few friends. Um, they came back though. They came back. We Willie. Uh, I'm so a guy jump over a fence to go beat somebody up because he was having P PTS or whatever is that is they have. So yeah, yeah. Came back a little weird, you know, from the drugs and what they had to deal with over there. So I I was blessed because I don't know if I could have made it. I just mm -hmm. couldn't see myself killing nobody. You you mentioned drugs and you wind up going into the entertainment industry full time. Yeah. In the 1970s, when that yeah. was everywhere, yeah. and you know it was wide open, uh, you don't have to tell me anything you don't want to tell me, but I'm going to ask you. You know, how did you navigate through that, and how are you still standing upright today when so many others, including uh, Cuba Gooding Senior, is not? So yeah. how did how did you make it? Well, I told you I was a little church boy. I was always a church boy when I first started, and the guys you had to drift away from that. I mean, you had all of that. I, I am, no, I'm, I'm, I'm like, watch this. Come on now. When I first got with them, I was straight out of church. And they were doing everything. They were shooting drugs. They were doing some of everything. And the manager would find them. And I'd tell the manager on all of them who was doing what they were doing. And they were getting checks like $10, $5 at the end of the week. Because I'm told every day when they're doing this. So they said that because I was telling on them, I couldn't hang with them anymore. I was like, okay, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. So for two weeks, I did that, and they were having parties every night. So at the end of the two weeks, I'm like, I'm tired of being by myself. I went and knocked on the door. I was like, okay, whatever y'all need me to do, I'll do. So from that <laughs> day on, they got me, and I did some of everything. To, I mean, not harshly, because if I had done too much, I wouldn't be here today. Right. Good thing the good Lord was still in me. I did 
like marijuana, so I did stick with that uh, through the years. But everything else, they had me trying window pain, acid, um, 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 cough syrup. Uh, what else? They had me doing. Um, what's the big one? I can't even think of that now. Heroin. I never shot it, but I snorted it, and that that made me realize that I didn't want to do that because I was with a beautiful young lady and I kept falling asleep. So I was <laughs> like, I don't need that. So. And cocaine, I've seen it all, but it wasn't for me. So I, I, I never did that. that was there a low me. point during that time where you said, man, I got to get myself together and get away from all this? Was there a low no, point? No, I never got that bad. No, Good. I never. I, I couldn't do it like that. My spirit, I, 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 if I did too much, I'd be dead. Because that window pane they gave me, I took a little piece, and they did a whole slab. And before the show... They was acting crazy. I'm like, play, I could have took more than that. But I'm glad I didn't because when we did the show, the first half of the show, people was applauding. We was like the Jackson 5 um, cartoon in sync like that. <laughs> the second half of the show, people started melting in my face. Oh, wow. They actually started melting in my face. I ran off the stage. It's like, you better get back out there. You need this song. So it was crazy, but I never did that again. I was just thankful that I, I had that experience, know that I didn't want to do that ever again. So I, I wasn't a person who liked to feel like that. That's not me. You know. Glad you made it through. Jerome Jackson is our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast. Longtime lead singer of the Drifters. And we're talking about his 50-year career in the music Ooh. industry. 50 years. How about yeah, that? Yeah, man. It's been a long time coming, man, really. And I enjoyed every minute of it, though. I must say. I enjoyed every minute of it. Was there ever a time during that 50 years where you said, I can't do it anymore. I got to walk away. I have to get a normal, regular job. And, and you left for a time? I did. Um, this was back in the beginning when I was with the first group. And um, I went back and was getting ready to get a job at the post office, driving. I passed the test and everything. And the manager called me from Canada and said, Jerome, we need you. I was like, I'm coming. So I went back. I might have been gone for maybe a month. That was it. And uh, I went back out on the road. And other and than that, you've since. made your living from singing your whole life then? All my life. My whole life. For real. It's been good. I've spent a lot. Um, uh, I've done a lot. I've helped a lot of people. You know, so a lot of family members. So it's just been good. I'm, I must say God is good. God has been good to me. He's kept me through the years. And he's worked miracles in my life. There are times that I went in the studio with the... Um, with a four-piece band, but I had prayed before I went there and said, good Lord, when I go in here and do this song tonight, I want you to put the rest of the strings and the horns and everything else around it so people can hear it. Well, we went and did that, and the young lady that was going to arrange it, her and I was in Brooklyn, well, on the 16th floor, and we put the cassette in the tape to hear what she needed to do to put the arrangement on it, and cut the machine on, and all of a sudden, in the air was uh, violins and horns and all this stuff. She stopped the tape. She's like, did you hear that? I'm like, yeah, I heard it, but I had already prayed for it. So I was pretty good with this. I am still pretty good with the good Lord. Not as much as I used to, but I'm pretty into it. You, uh, you've always uh, been 
in, involved in these these group dynamics, despite yes. the fact that, as you mentioned with the main ingredient, it wasn't always easy. You know, you had three guys and two of them are opposite ends of things. You're right. trying to keep the peace. Uh, and then, you know, with the drifters for the last 30 years or so, you've got, uh, you know, lots of other guys yeah. around you. Was there ever a time when, when you said, no more of this, I needed to be the Jerome Jackson show, or is it the opposite where you feel most at home when you're sharing the spotlight with other people? Um, either way is fine. Um, and that's because, like I was saying to you, really, through all of these years that I've been performing, because I was really, and I don't share this too much, but I was really not an entertainer. I was a, a sportsman. If I put into the work what I put into sports, if I had put that into music, I'd been much further today. Wow. I, it wasn't, I didn't, I was an introvert. I didn't go out and meet a lot of people. I know, I've known people through the industry, but I never really tried to befriend them or, con you know, as, as the years went by. I never did that. I was, it just kept happening. Always when something closed down for me, something else opened up all the way through my career. See, that's like very that. interesting. That's very introspective, though, because what, what I hear you saying is it's not about big me and little you. You just kind of felt like you were fortunate to be a part of this this whole thing that, that this had happened for you. That's just the way it went. I mean, it, it, it has it has kept me afloat through the years. Um, but because I was not into being an entertainer when I was little or coming up or even as I went on, it just never, I just rolled, rolled with the way the whole time and tried to get better. It, it even hindered me because I sang words. I didn't sing the meaning of words when I was singing. I'm getting into it a little more now, yeah. but in the beginning, I was just singing what I heard. I could duplicate anything. You know, it was coming out me, but in my mind, I was singing it like somebody else to a degree. Right. So it's been challenging, but it's been enjoyable too, because when I do get a chance to feel myself and be on stage and intermingle with, with the people in the audience, it just makes me feel so good when I can see them smiling and clapping and appreciating so it's a good thing when you see audiences out there tell me about the difference between white audiences and black audiences is right. Right, well you know what <laughs> white audiences pay black audiences you may you may get paid that's <laughs> that's the difference <laughs> and luckily for the last 31 years um we've been inclined with the, the white audiences or the or the more um, um, reliable sources in the business. Because when I was with the main ingredient, there are sometimes you'd be worried about whether you're gonna get paid or not. Wow. Yeah. So you know, and and that was because of Cuba Gooding. He was more so a a, a street person. Right. So you know, he dealt with street people. So it, it was crazy. You know, but with the with the drifters, it's always class one stuff. You get treated very well. Uh, you get your money on time. You, everything's paid for. You don't have to pay, have any experience, any expenses on the road or nothing. 
everything's paid for. So, and I'm sure you know about that. You, you missed a lot of the, uh, the really hardcore stuff that, that we read about now, you know, uh, green book kind of stuff. You didn't deal with any real overt, serious racism when you were traveling through the South in the seventies and and eighties, that was all a little before your time. I would hope, right? Yeah, it was. It was the only time that we had a, uh, a little bit, and that was with some police officers up upstate New York when I was with the first group, and we came back through. Uh, we came back through a, a town up in upstate New York, and um, when we we drove into the city, we had a, a, a white driver, and he wanted to stop and and see a friend of his. Well, when we rolled in. It looked like the rats started running and the police started coming and they came up to us and said, um, what are you boys doing here? And like, we just stopped here. Like, well, you boys got to move on. You just got to move on, right? So uh, they was like, well, I tell you what, we got a, a, a hurt child here. If if you can go over here and sing for, their, for them at the hospital, you all can stay. But other than that, you got to go. So that was the only time we really had you know, that experience, but it, it was more funny than anything else. Yeah. Jerome Jackson is our guest. The show is the Big Time Talker podcast, and Jerome, longtime lead singer of the Drifters. Hey, I want to I want to ask you about the Drifters. Yes. Um, you joined them, you said, in 1991. Yes. The Drifters, you know, first came together in, in the 1950s. So by the, yes. the time yeah. you joined the group, you know, the original guys no longer there. Um you're you're keeping this music alive though from a different era do you feel a responsibility in any way to those songs and to keeping that music you know fresh and current for new generations i do yes i do i think um this music will last forever and i think that it should keep its content of what it was in the beginning and it just so happened that i was with three of the original guys and they taught me the ropes and taught me how to drift us was the foundation of it and how they were performing and all that. And I try to keep that into what I do on stage, even though a few of the younger guys now try to, to go another route. But when I'm with them, I let them know that this is the way we're going to do it. You know, instead of the way that you all want to do it, they, they, they get responses. But to me, showing the legacy of what it really was is what's important. And especially to the people. And uh, so I, I guess I didn't realize that. So when you first got involved with the group, you actually did get to, to perform or spend some time with some of the guys that were there in the beginning. Yes. Um, Elberry Hobbs. I worked with Charlie Thomas. I worked with, um, um, oh, wow, I can't, my brains. Well, I did a commercial or two with Benny King. Wow. Uh, and um, uh, the original basing of the um, Drifters, Bill Pinckney. Sure. I worked with I've worked with him a few times too. So yeah, I was with those guys quite a bit. I was mainly with Elberry Hobbs, the second bass singer that did um um There Goes My Baby, the bass part. So I was with him. That's how I started with him. So and, and these songs you talk about is sort of preserving that legacy. What is it you think about the drifters songs in particular? That they give them this longevity because there's lots of stuff from back in that era, especially the early fifties. That's nowhere now, right? Oh man, These songs they 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 are timeless. So is it is it the vocals? Is it the lyrics? Is it the orchestration? What is it? I think they, the the drifters had this kind of 
sex appeal, along with simplicity in the music. It was just so easy to relate to. A lot of music back in that time was very easy, but I think the Drifters was the first one that came out with strings and horns that did all of the uh, uh, the orchestration and the music. So I think that was a, um, an attraction to them at that time. And plus they just kept having great lead singers and a lot of great songs that's coming out, you know, that that it's it just beautiful stuff all the time. Save the last dance for me. There goes my baby, this magic moment up on the roof. Uh, when my little girl is smiling, um, uh, dance with me. On Broadway, dance with me. Um, um, count the tears, and it's just so many of them that people can relate to. And it was just during the time that um, it was the, the the new generation coming up, and they just grabbed a hold to that and and, and ran with it. And you know, the Drifters had uh, some of this pretty unique in music, in that even when they were at the top of their game. They had sort of this revolving, rotating, That's right. uh, you know, group of, of incredible lead singers. That's like right. McFadder and Benny yes. King and Johnny Moore. Uh, Rudy how, Lewis. How did they do that? Rudy Lewis. How do you think they were able to maintain at that high level by having that kind of change? Uh, I guess just like today, they, they just continuously get pretty good singers and pretty good people along the way that, you know, that... Um, were they were fortunate that they were just in that position to, to do that and it still happens now we still kind of lead the way as far as the entertainment perspective of it and 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 having that sound and that 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 warmth of music through our vocals but it still happens you know when you, you go back and listen to some of those songs from uh, the early 60s the the songs themselves just sound so crisp and so clear and so lush with those strings. Yeah. Kind of unusual for that time, right? For early rock and roll where it was, you know, guitar, drums, bass. Uh, yeah. These songs, they, they really, you know, will put you in a certain place in your mind. And I wonder if, if after you do a show, if, if people will come up and share that with you, well, do they ever say, Oh, you know, that song was the song I met my wife, you know, this is the song that, that my son was born yeah. to or whatever. Yeah. A lot of times, man, they come up with a whole, whole lot of stories and where they were and, and how they felt at the time and, and how they might've proposed to a woman doing the time of the music on it. They come up with all kinds of stories. It's great. It's just great stuff, man. You, you, you know, it. I know you got to know it, man. It, it's just great stuff hearing people share their souls with you from what their experiences were when they were younger. It's wonderful. Do they ever try to do the math and figure it out? You know, it's like, oh, wait a minute. You're singing here, but this song came out in 1959. Do they ever try to work that out? Man, I tell you, the younger guys we got now, they don't care. They get on stage. They was like, 1965. Of course, I wasn't there then. You know, see, they'll, they'll see it right on stage. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the people will chuckle, you know, so um, they know. Most of them know. Um, and um, I have had a time that somebody thought I was one of the originals. Uh, I guess because I've been there so long. But, yeah, you know, they, they started when I was born. Well, you know, you you really are the guy that, that kind of bridged the gap, though. Uh, I, and I didn't realize that. I mean, you did work with some of those original guys. I did. 
and you know, and you're still here today. Um, yeah. Now, let me ask you, you know, there is some controversy around some of these legacy groups where yes. they no longer can be original members. And this is all kinds of music, you know, not just classic yes. R&B. You know, there's a, yeah. a big Southern rock group that's out there right now uh, from the 1970s. Southern rock, you know, long haired guys, Molly Hatchet, no original members in that group from the 1970s. Right. Um, and, and I wonder, and I know, Jerome, this is what you do for a living, but I wonder about your thoughts on on groups continuing where there are no original members. Well, it has to happen sooner or later because nobody lives forever. Right. And as long as the people want the music, then it leaves room for other people to do it. Now, the only problem is, is that you got so many of them. You got a lot of them out there. A lot of it might be three or four drifters out there now in different places in the world and in the United States. You know, so um, the, the thing about it is that some of them are illegitimate. They're not. They're not supposed to be doing it. Uh, our company now, since they don't have any more original members, they do um, lease the name in order to have it now unlike in the beginning when they had two of the original members right with them that they didn't have to do that so um but they do have to lease it now and that, that's how we are able to keep on going now and lease it from like uh the families of the original yes, yes. folks mm -hmm. yes exactly but, you know to me it keeps that music alive and vibrant if as you said it doesn't get diluted and watered down by lesser groups that that don't do the music uh you know good service exactly exactly and that's what we try to maintain is the quality of the the show and the music that's what we do you know one thing that oh, I learned I that was interesting about the drifters was that they had this whole sort of second career where they blew up huge in england and europe in the 1970s and 80s had a, a whole another set of big hit songs there yeah they did um, that was the Treadwells. They were performing more so overseas than performing here. So, um, but now they're they're back over here too. But really, they don't really. Um, I don't think they perform anymore. I think she has given us the um, the rights to this to the Drifters now. When you they have British fans, do they uh, ask for the songs that were hits only in Europe, or like if you play in England, will they ask for? different songs because there were some songs that were only big hits over there that were never hits in the states you know i've never really been to england i'm is that right I've, no i haven't i i think that's another thing the good lord did for me too because i went to china twice but i can't take those long flights so i've been blessed to be kind of south america mexico all the islands um uh, like I said, China and a few other places and everywhere in the United States right. uh, through 31 years. Um, but I really haven't been abroad that much. A lot of the guys have, but I haven't. Is there a state that you have not been to in the continental U.S.? I don't think so. You've been to all of them? I think I've been to all of them, yes. All of them. And just about it, probably almost every little city, too. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, man. We, we uh, People love us kind of everywhere they do they love us everywhere man so the it has cut back a lot now but in the 90s when i first got here we were all over the place to traveling the hardest part of that job yes it is 
Yes, it is. That that that's a burden, especially now that I'm older. Uh, when I was in my forties, um, when I first got with them, um, it wasn't as bad because I had been used to traveling anyway. Right. But now it kind of catches up with me a bit. Those early morning, late nights, especially leaving from out here, we'd be on the red eye and get in early in the morning. It's just crazy. And then we have to rehearse a lot with the with the bands and stuff when we go even though we have bands that we've been working with forever, still have to go and rehearse them and like doing a show and then come back doing another show. And sometimes you have to do two shows of a day. So it's crazy. So that's the hard part. What's yes. your favorite part of what you do for a living? What's the best thing? Just being on stage and, 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 and enjoying the people in the audience, making them laugh and making them feel my spirit. That's the best part for me. I love that spirit, and I love that you took some time to talk with us today. Thank you, Jerome. I appreciate you a lot. Thank you so much. Look for Jerome Jackson and the Drifters still on tour and playing those timeless classics. Thank you for being a part of the show today. It's the Big Time Talker podcast brought to you by SpeakerMatch.com. I'm Burke Allen. Thank you so much for being here. Now go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. Uh